Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. Today, we have Bill Brenner from the Cyber Risk Alliance to discuss their 2023 Global State of Cybersecurity Study. Now, for followers of the show, you know how often we discuss third-party research because effective security professionals are always staying on top of database security research and studies to just stay on top of their constantly evolving security programs, the constantly evolving threat landscape, the constantly evolving tools and technology, while less effective security teams are simply responding to the latest media hype or perhaps just responding to the latest threat, trying to be in reaction mode. But this time, in addition to some great insights from your peers on their top concerns and best practices, this year's study is, uh, has resulted in over a dozen reports, ranging from the global overview, which we'll really be focusing on today, to a dozen country-level breakdowns. So we're lucky to have Bill with us today. Um, Bill is with the Cyber Risk Alliance, and he's going to help us go over those highlights. So thank you for being back on the show, Bill. Yeah, great to be with you again. Now, to set the stage for the audience, as we do with a lot of these reports, um, I want to touch on a couple of interesting things that can be learned from the report and some of the extra background that might provide some interesting context. But the, the full report is available for free on the Infobox uh, website. I want everybody to know that. We're just going to cover highlights. So um, if you go to the website and you don't see a banner advertising it, just go to the resources section and select white papers, which includes all of our third-party research. Now, Bill, the first thing I look at when I run across some sort of a news survey is the demographic. I want to make sure that, you know, these are actually my peers. So where did you get all this data from? So we, when we do surveys at Cyber Risk Alliance, the respondents are from across CRA's audience. So readers of SC Magazine, listeners of Security Weekly, readers of... MSSP alert. Uh, so we cast a net across the audience and we try to get responses that cover three personas, the decision maker, executive, the director, manager, and then what we call the, pr the practitioner. So your, your security engineers, architects, developers. Yeah, the ones sitting on so the front forth. lines the ones on the front lines. So we did, this survey had uh, 1,300 respondents, multiple languages across 13 global markets, um, 100 respondents from each of the following countries. So the US, of course, Mexico, Brazil, United Kingdom, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Spain, United Arab Emirates, Australia, Singapore, and for the first time this year, we also uh, surveyed professionals in India and Japan. Yeah, that's 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 good background because I was looking through it and I did notice them, and I couldn't remember last year's report because this is not the first time you've done this. And I was trying mm -hmm. to compare things, and I noticed that uh, I couldn't remember India and Japan, so they're new this year. Yep, they are brand new. Um, and it added just a great layer of additional context for the global report. You know, those are two areas where, particularly Japan, you don't see a lot of uh, research that zeroes in on Japan and, and how, how organizations there are faring with their security programs. 
So it was nice to get that slice of, of it. Yeah, they uh, are two countries that represents other extremes of how they approach um, a lot of different aspects of business. And that, that includes cybersecurity. I don't think a lot of people think of it from that perspective. So this was really great. And I was pleased that a lot of the data in the report, um, it actually led to some pretty solid guidance. It was actionable. Um, it explained a lot about the current state of the cyber attacks, as well as what these uh, practitioners that you interviewed um, or surveyed what steps they're taking. I thought that was that was very useful. But as all good surveys do, it also includes results that I often re refer to as the scary story numbers. You know, if you're in cybersecurity and you're asked to present, the first thing you have to do is present some scary number that, you know, uh, this has breached 80,000 billion people and, you know, cost $14 billion a year for, you know, they're, they're just huge, scary numbers. Um, now you have some scary numbers, but I actually was pleased because they're realistic. Now, for example, on the, the, the global survey showed that 62% of the respondents had experienced a breach, uh, last year. I was actually a little, um, surprised it wasn't slightly higher, but when I started realizing how carefully you were using terms like breach, incident, um, impact, and things like that, it did make a lot more sense and becomes more realistic. So I, I was really pleased with that. Um, but they did break it down by country too. So this was cool. Yeah, we had the global report, but then for all of these other countries, there's a separate version of the report for them. And, uh, yeah, to your point about scary numbers, um, I say this often. Uh, people who are not in our industry that I might talk to at a family function, let's say, where it's, you know, so what's what's the big scary? What's What are the bad guys up to, you know? Um, and the reality is most companies have experienced attempts at a breach, have, have experienced attacks. And it's something that's always going on in the background 24 seven. And I think that, um, I think of these memes on social media where it's um, what, I, what I think my job is, what my mother thinks my job is, what my job really is. And it's just this guy working at a computer, laboring away at, <laughs> you know, looking at night numbers that don't look exciting. And, um, you know, really, the to me, the most important thing is always, um, okay, we know you've been attacked. We know these are the areas where you think you're most weak. But what what our audience wants from us is some guidance. Well, what about this stuff? How do we, how can we do better fighting these same battles we've been fighting for 20 years against, against bad actors? Um, so... The guidance is critical. Oh, yeah. The guidance is critical. Um, and before we move into some more on that on detail, I did want to highlight, because you mentioned Japan and India were new. But mm -hmm. on the, you know, how many breaches did you have? Well, the global average was 62%. Japan reported less than half that many, 26%. And India actually reported <laughs> one third more at 82%. So I wanted to discuss, uh, let's first... Japan have so many fewer breaches. So I, I, I put a lot of, I did a lot of thinking on why that was because it jumped out at me. And one thing that 
is interesting with Japan is their disclosure laws are not as stringent and full of teeth as they are, say, in the U.S., in the European Union. And so part of me wonders, does it look like it's low there just because a lot of these companies aren't required to report? I think that probably is some of it. I don't want to assume that that is all of it, though, because it could just be that uh, a lot of Japanese organizations, they take their security very seriously and they're just better at, you know, stopping things. But uh, I, I, it did give me pause. I did look and say, hmm, I wonder how much of this is because it's easier to not disclose that you've been attacked and that it's resulted in a data breach. I think culture is definitely a piece of it. Um, you know, sense of honor. Well, and I recall there was, um, I was working at a, a, a company that actually sold consumer endpoint, uh, you know, home antivirus. Um, and they were really big in uh, Asia and uh, had a huge presence there. So when they did our global survey, they surveyed, end users at corporations. So they did have corporate software. They also had consumer software, but they surveyed the end users at the organization and asked them if your machine became infected and they did this globally. If your machine was to actually become infected, how much do you feel it's your fault? And um, it was interesting. You, you went to, um, you know, Asian countries and particularly in Japan, it was the highest um, where they actually felt like if their machine was breached, they might have been part of the problem and they felt a little more guilty about it. You went to the European region, um, a little less so. Americans were fairly like, eh, IT, you guys are supposed to protect us. It's not my fault, <laughs> that kind of thing. So the attitudes were different. And that may play here. I hadn't thought that until you, uh, you mentioned it. What about India? Why would they be so high? So I, I think... When it comes to India, and again, um, I'm not going to take what I say as gospel. These are my impressions when I'm looking and analyzing the data. And I think when you're dealing with India, you have one of the world's biggest populations um, in number and density, and you have a lot of organizations and so I think it's a size thing. So when I talk to people who are not in the industry, like my family again, um, and I'm trying to simplify things, you know, if you're, if you're Switzerland, the size of the target hackers have on your back is not going to be the same as in the United States, where there are a lot of mo there's a lot of motivation on the part of Chinese and Russian actors to cause mayhem. Um, I think when you look at Japan, and again, we talked about disclosure laws, um, you know, smaller company, smaller country, rather, smaller bullseye, at least that's, that's how it looks to me on the surface. And I could always be wrong there. But um, India, given its population, its density, and the number of organizations out there, especially those that are in tech, they straight off the bat have a big target on their back. 
Well, I also know, you know, um, a lot of countries when they really tried to expand and grow their economies and stuff, they would pick, you know, um, I know one island nation, they went 100% pharmaceuticals. The government backed them and supported them, and they really pushed into pharmaceuticals and became one of the uh, largest manufacturers uh, of the world's uh, pharmaceuticals for a number of years mm-hmm. until the wind changed and politics got involved and uh, they destroyed their own industry, yeah. but they were a leader. And in India, it's a little different because they're doing everything. I mean, they are pushing in so many different directions. Um, and I mean this in a good way. They are the Wild West. They're trying everything. They're doing everything. Um, but that means that the regulations quite aren't there and stuff. And I think that might be another reason. Um, and they're brutally yeah. honest. I, I love uh, I love the country. Um, you know, I never have to wonder really where I am with people. Um and uh, so they may actually be the most honest group of people that responded to your survey. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some truth there. Now, um, there, I want to move on to the attack vectors because this is where you know I can now start evaluating my own defenses, what kind of tools I have. Do I have layers of defense on the key attack vectors and so forth? So there was a section specifically on attack vectors. Um, and one of the, the, well, not one of, the number one attack vector was phishing. It didn't surprise me entirely because email has been number one for quite a while. Um, but uh, you know, half of those surveyed had, been, had said they'd been attacked by a supply chain or third party, um, you know, which means they're using trusted connections. So phishing email that came through like a partner system uh, was also in here. So it was all kinds of phishing emails, whether they're phishing, business email compromise. Um, email still is a significant uh, part of the problem here, right? It is. So let's start with the phishing. And email is still a big part of the challenge. But those who launch phishing attacks have really expanded who they're targeting. So a lot of phishing is delivered by text on your phone, is delivered in your social media platforms, is delivered right from the browser. So that so that attack surface where phishing can be successful just keeps on expanding. Yeah, there was a an attack, I think it was January of this year, not too long ago, uh, where Coinbase was attacked, mm-hmm. where one of their developers received an email or excuse me, a text message via their phone, and it was for or pretending to be their multi-factor authentication platform. And the link even looked convincing. They were using a lookalike kind of a link on it. And so they they thought it was, you know, asking for validation. They pressed something and it didn't seem to work. So then they went ahead on with their day just thinking, oh, it's a bug. Um, but what they just done was handed over, um, you know, uh, what the bad guys needed to progress the attack. Um, so yeah, no, it's not just email, it's text messages anyway. And of course, social media, uh, we're seeing it through that way. Um, which I'm assuming as you talked about attack vectors, uh, there were other attack vectors like ransomware and things like that, where ransomware, if I'm like on the internet and I just see an ad and I click on it, I might get the ransomware direct, uh, which would be, okay, ransomware was my attack vector. But if I get it via email and I click on a link before I even get to the ransomware, the first step was email. So I thought it was interesting that you broke that down 
again, helping me not get blinded because so many reports, I see them and they, oh yeah, number one problem is ransomware. Protect yourself from ransomware. And it's like, okay, but how? Because <laughs> it's not all email. Like you said, we're seeing text messages. We're seeing other vectors used to deliver it. So ransomware sometimes is a vector because you just immediately went out and clicked on something that downloaded it. Other times, the first step was some other vector that got to you. Yeah, well, ransomware is interesting because through across my career, there's been this mindset of, well, ransomware, it's old news. What's next? But every year, ransomware continues to be one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest sources of successful attacks that we've seen. And, and the reason is, as old an art form as ransomware is, it's really become this corporate, almost corporate-like operation. We actually, um, on SC Magazine, we, had an, we did an article about a couple months ago about this, um, and we called it, you know, Hacker Incorporated. And first you have ransomware as a service where you can come in knowing nothing about how to launch an attack, but you can buy these kits that is plug and play, right? Yeah. And a lot of ransomware gangs are organized just like your typical business structure, right down to right down to the HR. So that has really allowed them to take something old and continue to innovate with it. So when when our respondents come back and say that that's still one of their biggest problems, um, it's no surprise to me at all. The only thing that's a surprise is how wrong my own perception was 10 years ago when I said, oh, this is old. What's What are the new things? Yeah. And the new things tend to be just an evolution of the old thing. Like you said, they're taking uh, even mm -hmm. business models and simply applying it into a, a new type of business called, you know, cyber. Um, uh, malicious cyber. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we have um, Renee Burton, who's the head of our threat intelligence group here, who I was just talking mm -hmm. to uh, about a half hour ago before uh, we started this. And um, I'm going to have her on the show here in a few, uh, hopefully in a few weeks to talk about the infrastructures that they build. Cause you know, like you said, they have an HR department and you know how they're structured as a business, but also they don't just sit around and write a new piece of malware. That's not what they do. They, uh, to be successful, they create these massive global infrastructures for either delivering phishing attacks or malvertising, whatever their type of attack is, um, they build these massive infrastructures. And like you said, some of them even like rent it right. out, you know, uh, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll sublease it to other people uh, to use for their attacks. So yeah, it's extremely complicated. Um, it's, it's like ransomware, Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, air, air ransom really and it. ransom. Um, yeah. Now, in the attack, uh, again, I wanted to really highlight this because right now one of my big concerns is the supply chain with all the nation state actors that we saw happening, um, you know, increasing here with the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Um, I mean, they've been around for a long time, but it really stepped up about that time where in order to target a particular victim, instead of targeting them, they first try to target the people they do business with. So um, that excuse that companies had that, well, you know, who would ever come after me? I'm just some little old podunk company. Um, 
yeah, but you actually happen to provide a service and you have access to this other company and they've got access. And it doesn't even have to be like, oh, I, I work with a government, con you know, a government agency. No, maybe you work with somebody who supplies a contractor who supplies a government agency. These guys will go down three or four steps, which means everybody could be a potential victim just because they want your connection to somebody else. Yeah, and there are a couple of layers to this. Um, so I think a lot of what we're dealing with with supply chain and third party, it's the continued byproduct of the pandemic where during the pandemic, as everybody was having to make their operations remote, that push into the cloud just accelerated, you know, threefold. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the process of ramping up cloud-based operations, you're grabbing onto different apps to take care of different things. So for example, an app for video, if you're using something that's not, you know, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or um, what have you, but, you know, you're downloading all these apps to enable online working and it's impossible to know who the designers are of the application, who developed it, what their security procedures are to ensure that they're developing secure code. It's one of those things where organizations had to start using all of these third-party programs just to survive. But one, who had time to go back and see, you know, how is... It's easy to say, well, you're in security. Shouldn't you be triple and quadruple checking the, you know, who developed this, what comes bundled with this app that's hiding in the background. And with the, the onset of the pandemic and everything that came with it, people were just trying to keep their head above water and to keep their businesses from imploding. So yeah, a lot of stuff, even the most security savvy among us, had to do things. And it was only later that the thinking circled back to what is the security of this app? Um, what is their policy for making sure that only people who should have access have access? So I think everything we see with supply chain and third party is that's the source of it anyway. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I wanted to check one last thing. Of course, uh, Infoblox sponsors mm -hmm. this section. And of course, their, their uh, value add is to provide um, you know, that uh, defense in depth by doing security at the DNS layer rather than another product that's just going to scan for malware. It, it works at a completely different layer than most of your security tools. And so there was a section yeah. in this survey where you asked about the uh, evolving role of DNS. And I was surprised because um, when I even... I uh, was interviewing with uh, Infoblox years ago. It's like, okay, tell me how is this different than, and I would, you know, there's a bunch of other tools that sounded like they do the same thing. Um, and it was an eye opener for me. And I have almost 40 years in the security industry, um, starting as a developer. Um, I actually uh, worked at companies that introduced a number of industry firsts. So I've been on the bleeding edge for a long time, and yet I'd never run into DNS. So I was really surprised because over the last few years, I continue to meet people. They aren't aware of how DNS works and how it could actually provide something for security. But your respondents 
it was a very high percentage of them that saw the value and were using it for things like, um, you know, just to see what kind of devices, you know, that visibility, what are these devices doing? Uh, and when I say devices, I mean, in our world today, you know, it's not just my laptop and servers. I've got BYOD, we've got IoT devices, right. um, a smart TVs in the conference room. What are all these devices doing? And I was surprised uh, the report showed 49% of people are using DNS just purely for the visibility that they couldn't get any other way. Yep. And that's another... It's one of the more positive um, byproducts of the pandemic because, you know, we've reached this point in the last year where it's gone from, oof, we have to get into the cloud to, okay, now we're here. We now know that, you know, we now know which areas we could have been better at on security during the deployment process. But now we're here and one of the first lessons we learned is with this proliferation of endpoint devices, iPhones, Android, Internet of Things devices, that visibility, the ability to see that broader attack surface became pretty plain. And so you've started seeing, we've started seeing a lot more investment on anything that will help visibility. So it's almost like um, DNS was... This might sound a little flippant, but the, the DNS was just rediscovered. <laughs> there was an there was an oh there was an oh yeah moment. Yeah, they know they know they need it. They know that everything runs on it. Um, most people, though, when I talked to them about DNS security, they were thinking about just yeah, I need to secure my DNS. It needs to be safe because if it goes down, we can't connect anything. But they didn't realize, and that's where again this really surprised me that they started realizing that hey, I can just watch DNS and I can see other stuff going on. It's not just to keep the DNS up, but DNS actually can tell me what my devices are doing. Um, and then, but you also had a question there about DNS tunneling and uh, domain generation algorithms and DGAs. Um, I was surprised that even more than visibility, there were, there were slightly more than half of the respondents who said they actually are focusing on making sure DNS tunneling, DGAs, they're monitoring DNS for that kind of activity. Uh, whereas DGAs, I mean, uh, secure web gateways, next-gen firewalls, they've been doing that for a while. But honestly, you know, they're not dealing with DNS or, or domains directly. They're, they're even making right. a DNS call. So it was interesting to see them moving that down. They're taking that type of security tool, moving it down to that DNS layer, um, so that was really surprising to me. I expected a, a lower number than not, not 51%. That was, that was wild. Yeah. To be honest, I don't, I can't say I was surprised. Um, I think if the numbers were higher still, then the surprise might've crept in. But I also, you know, I, I talk all the time to security professionals who are in the trenches every day. And so I knew at that ground level that, um, that this activity was more widespread. Yeah, and I want to make sure everybody understands that the reason why it surprised me is because this was not a survey that where, you know, Infoblox gave you, here's a list of our customers, <laughs> survey them and see what they think about. Obviously, they would know the value uh, if they're one of our customers. You used right. your lists of, you know, which had nothing to do with Infoblox. That was, uh, and that's why I was yeah. surprised. I was surprised that outside of my own little world, the the 
the recognition of where DNS security and how important it is has just gone up. Um, that that was really uh, p- pleasantly, uh, you know, a pleasant surprise. Isn't it a great thing when independent research can provide validation mm-hmm. for what yeah. you're doing? So in this in this case, you know, respondents just simply validated this approach. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're starting to see more of that. Uh, so this was really great. Um, I think I got a bit of a tip that this was coming. Uh, the SANS Institute did a report in February as well um, about the, the role of DNS for SecOps. Um, but uh, this this put numbers behind it because that was just a thought leadership thing. You know, there it was an opinion piece. Um, but now seeing this statistical research behind it that, yeah, that just makes me uh, makes me really happy. Um, did you have any final thoughts here before we have to sign off for the podcast? No, just that it's it's always a pleasure coming on here with you. Um, enjoyed it last year. I feel like this year we had a lot of um, interesting trend shifts to talk about. So, yeah, I was just happy to be here. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. And also thank you for doing it on a global basis, having those those uh, 13 other countries. And uh, I think there's a European regional version. Having so many different versions really helps uh, when you're trying to get the, not just the feel for how it's affecting a particular organization in a particular country, but how they are uh, comparing to their peers around the world uh, that might give them some uh, food for thought and maybe some tips and tricks. So um, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. And I want to thank you, all of our viewers and listeners, for your time. Join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.